Certainly one of the main activities of organized golf, not just the RNA, but the USGA, although they lead the world in this, is to address slow play in golf, to address the pace of play. And there's a tremendous amount of work being done outside the rules. But we did want to make sure that the rules, to the extent they could, would encourage a better pace of play and to eliminate anything that might be slowing down play. While they still held together really well, they're extremely well written, there was a feeling that it was time to take a fundamental look at the rules of golf. And there was a feeling that some of the penalties that were being applied were not really fair to the player. There were times when players were receiving two-stroke penalties when really they weren't gaining a real advantage. So we wanted to make a penalty system fairer to the player, eliminate any of the traps for the player. And then I guess the final point I would make is we wanted as much as possible to not have the rules as an entry barrier to new golfers. We wanted them to be able to pick up the game quickly and not be stressed out by this complicated code that we have right now. Welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast, where we speak with the influencers, disruptors, entrepreneurs, and innovators who are shaping the future of golf. If you're a regular listener, welcome back. If you're new to the Mod Golf Podcast, thank you for joining us and please subscribe, rate, and review the show on either iTunes or our show page at www.mod.golf so that you'll never miss the latest engaging story with my amazing guests. If you'd like to receive our monthly newsletter, which I'll start publishing in a few weeks' time, please sign up on the Mod Golf Podcast website to receive the latest news relating to the innovative future of golf. I'm your host, Colin Weston, and today my guest is Dale Jackson, who is currently a member of Golf Canada's Board of Directors, worked as a referee for the 2016 Olympics, the Open, the U.S. Open, the Masters and the Canadian Open, and for I understand, Dale, a whole bunch of other PGA events too, and, which is the main reason we're speaking with Dale here today, from 2013 to 2018, he represented Canada on the Joint Rules Committee, which is the group responsible for rewriting the rules of golf. With the new rule changes becoming effective on January 1st, 2019, I reached out to Dale so that he can pull back the curtain and shine some light on the five-year process, research, and decisions that have led to the creation of the new rules of golf. So Dale, I was a mouthful there. So Dale, thanks for joining us today and welcome to the Mod Golf Podcast. Colin, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you and I hope uh, we can shine some light on what's coming down the pipe on January 1st. Absolutely. Absolutely. So hey, to get us started here, Dale, please start by telling us your personal golf history and include the memory of your very first golf experience. Well, very first golf experience was I think I was nine years old. My mother had given my father a starter set of golf clubs for Christmas. He hated the game. For some reason, it attracted me immediately. And having two parents who were very understanding and supportive, they let me build a mini golf course in our front and backyard. I think it was six holes. And the hole liners were used tuna tins. And uh, that was the beginning. Wow. <laughs> Since then, I've, uh, I didn't really sort of fooled around with golf a little bit through the years. I didn't really start playing seriously till I was about 35. 
and then was hooked immediately and have been avid in all aspects of the game since then, obviously, including the rules of golf. <laughs> I love that story of your first golf experience. That was great. So <laughs> that's a nice segue into talking about the rules of golf. Obviously, you did not have 233 pages of rules that you applied to your backyard six-hole <laughs> golf course at the time. So, so with that, now that you're fully versed in this, Dale, can you please start by giving us a very brief history, brief as you can, of the history of the rules of golf? Sure. Well, golf has existed in some form farther back than we actually know. It goes back 1500s, 1400s, certainly earlier than that. But the first written set of rules was 1744 by something called the Leith Golfing Society, which became the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers, which everybody knows as Muirfield today. Yes. And it's interesting, they had 13 rules, and some of those rules really still exist basically unchanged today. Lost ball, ball that went into a water hazard, the language was different, but the procedures are still the same. Fast forward to 1892, and for various reasons, the world of golf, which was then just the United Kingdom, asked the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews to be the governing body for the rules of golf. So that happened in 1892. Fast forward some more, the United States became a golfing country, as did the main Commonwealth countries. The United States sort of drifted off on their own a little bit. But in 1952, there was what was called a joint code released. That was the first really significant rewrite of the rules in a long, long time. There was another rewrite in 1984, which was really for clarity, not for substance. And then about 30 years later, we came across the date that started this project. So this is the most significant rewrite of the rules, I would say, in history. It is intended to both make things easier and clearer, and that's where we got to. I should say, I guess there's just one more thing I would add. There was a lot of reasons why the timing was right for this project, but one of them was the emergence of television and the technology around television that really started to stress out the rules, things like, did that ball move or not? And as television replays became more prominent and the high technology, high resolution, super slow motion of today's technology became more prevalent, it really became obvious that some aspects of the rules needed to be addressed in reaction to that. Right. And we will dig into that. I still want to keep it high level here. But examples I'm sure you've seen right in the middle of the process of changing the rules of golf, you had things like the misfortunes that happened to Lexi Thompson, of course, that we saw there. And people just watching PGA Tour or LPGA events phoning in to scenes in high resolution, some infraction and feeling that they should be judge, jury and executioner. In a lot of cases, then after the fact, that then being put in place. So, uh, So we'll talk about that. In the, in the professional game, I, I know you're focusing mainly on the recreational side or both, or you can kind of articulate or comment on that. But but hey, let's step back to get us started here, Dale. So it's my understanding that the joint effort was spearheaded here by both the USGA and the RNA, which are the golf's two governing bodies, of course. So I would like to know first, what was the catalyst or that tipping point for instigating change? And who were the initiators for getting this process started five years ago? Well, I think, as I kind of just intimated, the rules of golf for a long time changed incrementally in response to specific problems that may or may not have existed. There'd never been a really comprehensive look. While they still held together really well, they're extremely well written, there was a feeling that it was time to take a fundamental look at the rules of golf. 
So that was one of the things. Obviously, pace of play is a big issue right now, has been for a while. And we wanted to see if we could help through the rules to help that. Uh, I just mentioned some problems with technology that were uh, really stressing out the rules. And there was a, a feeling that some of the penalties that were being applied were not really fair to the player. There's a, a principle that the penalty should be just slightly more than the biggest advantage that a player could gain. So there were times when players were receiving two-stroke penalties when really they weren't gaining a real advantage. So we wanted to make a penalty system fairer to the player, eliminate any of the traps for the player. And then I guess the final point I would make is we wanted as much as possible to not have the rules as an entry barrier to new golfers. We wanted them to be able to pick up the game quickly and not be stressed out by this complicated code that we have right now. Okay, so I want to go back five years ago, or even before that, the formulation of this group of the Joint Rules Committee. Now, as I mentioned in, in the intro, you represented Canada. So we can understand here and get a snapshot here, Dale, how many people made up this Joint Rules Committee and how was that group selected? Sure. The committee itself, this entity called the Joint Rules Committee, has existed for quite a long time, since 1952, roughly. And it was historically three from the RNA, three from the USGA, and then for obscure reasons, one from Canada. And then there was a staff from the RNA and USGA that supported it as well. When this project started, initially in 2012, but it really started to roll in 2013, there was some more representatives added. In total, I think the final number was 17. And in addition to USGA, RNA, Golf Canada, as I mentioned, we also had representatives from the PGA Tour, the European Tour, one of the state and regional associations in uh, the United States, and a couple of other rules experts from both the states and the UK. Understood. Okay. So walk us through this. How was it decided on the process then? Were you going to meet every single month or every quarter or and you're meeting in person or is this virtually? Or Let's start at the very beginning there. Who actually set up that first meeting and how was that conducted? And what was the overarching action items or topics from that very top that you wanted to accomplish to move forward? It was sort of driven by the RNA, I would suppose, although it really we were at a confluence of thought and timing. The RNA went to the USGA and said, we think we should take a sort of deeper dive into the rules than we have in the past. And the USGA was very receptive. So it was really an idea whose time had come. The first meetings were occupied in deciding on process scope, just how far were we going to go in this examination of the rules. Were there just specific rules, you know, a handful of specific problems, or was it going to be more broad-based? In the end, we decided basically everything was up for grabs. There were only a few guideposts. And I guess the most important one to me is that at the end of the day, whatever we came out with, golf still needed to be golf. We weren't changing the game. That was never the mandate. We were trying to make the game easier and address all those problems I've mentioned before. So that was the discussion points of the initial first year. 
Right, right. Myself as an architect and designer, I, I look at this as a design problem and how you write the premise and the vision of what it is that you wanted to accomplish and, and the roadmap of how to get there. So what were the next steps there? Did you start breaking every rule down, rule by rule, and then starting to separate them by saying, you know, these ones we're not going to touch at all. These ones we're going to investigate and perhaps change a little bit. And these ones, for the reasons you mentioned already about speeding up pace of play, making things more reasonable and fair and reducing complexity to make golf less intimidating for beginners, those are the ones we're going to change more. Is that fair that you had three buckets of where you'd place each one of the rules or how did you go about that? Yeah, I don't think it was maybe quite as rigorous as that, but okay. the first step was really to literally go through the rule book, rule by rule, subsection by subsection and say, is this working? Are there problems with this? Is there a way to do this one better? And at the end of the day, we came out with a complete review of the rules saying, here are all the things we want to address. Here are all the rules we want to address. The next uh, oof, two, three years were nothing more than sitting down in a committee as a whole and in subgroups to look at those, to research everything we could. What was the situation now? Document what the potential and real problems were. One of the interesting parts was to document the history of each rule. So I'll use an example. Most people probably know that effective January 1st, you're going to be able to leave the flagstick in the hole while you're putting on the putting green. Well, what was the history of that? As it turned out, up until I think the mid-60s, you could leave the flagstick in the hole. And for reasons we never really could document, the decision was made back then to change. So in that case, and others... We're going back to the way the rules were. So the history was really important and really interesting, actually. And then drew up alternatives. So this rule has uh, potentially these problems. Here's what we're thinking about. What are some of the answers? How could we address that? And so alternatives were drawn up. There might be two or three alternatives. And then there was a recommendation from a subgroup on which way to go. That whole process and going forward was just sitting down and really thinking and analyzing what each of these problems was all about, each of these project papers was all about, and where to go forward. That took us up to, ooh maybe the end of 2015, somewhere into 2016, something like that. Well, that's great. Well, thanks for that insight. I find it interesting for the little bit of golf history that I know and the research I've done that sometimes things, I'm sure you've researched these and they're kind of random or even arbitrary. You can't really figure out why it is. It's just, that's just the way we do it. And I, I was very intrigued in this story and I'll let you jump in and actually answer it if you'd like. And that is, why is a golf hole, why is the cup four and a quarter inches in diameter? And I'm sure you know the answer to that. Do you care to tell that story? I don't think I do know the answer to that. I'm, I guess I should be embarrassed. What? Well, I, maybe I know something you don't. Well, the, the story goes, I think it was around the, uh, the late 1800s or so. There was a golf course superintendent at one of the courses. It may have been um, your field. I'm not quite sure, but one of the courses in, in Scotland. Holes were hand dug or were actually dug with a shovel, so they were not consistent at all. Yeah. So behind one of the sheds, there was a piece of drainage pipe and found it easier and more effective just to take the piece of drainage pipe and jam it in the ground and twist it around and almost like an auger, drill a hole, and that became the hole. So it just happened to be that that piece of drainage pipe was four and a quarter inches in diameter. Otherwise, a hole may be smaller or bigger or something else than it is right now. So that, that's one of those random things, and that's the reason it is what it is. Well, I like the story. I, I'll be honest, I've, I haven't heard that before. It sounds entirely plausible. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, uh, I've even had, well, even people like Michael Breed have told me that story. He's backed that up. So uh, unless we both read okay. it from fake news on the internet, but I believe that <laughs> that one is true. And I've read it from different sources. I did background that one. So, so our listeners can understand her also if they haven't read the rules 
from cover to cover, which I will say I actually have a couple of years ago when we were recreating rules for our gameplay for something that we're creating in the golf realm. That's a shorter, tighter version of golf. So I know how many rules there are in golf. And I've understood you've actually changed over 30 rule changes. But so let our listeners know how many rules make up the rules of golf. Well, right now there are 34 rules of golf. Mm -hmm. I mentioned 1984 when there was a reorganization of the book. There was, I think it was high 40s or low 50s. So we went from that to 34 and effective January 1st, we're going to have 24. So we're going from 34 to 24. And I did see also that you've gone from 233 pages down to around 150. So being environmentally sustainable by having less paper for people that aren't uh, <laughs> aren't looking at it digitally. And I also understand you also have a pocketbook format that you're releasing also, yeah? Yeah, that's right. So the rules of golf moving forward in January are really intended to be for people like me, rules nerds, rules officials, referees. Right. The rule book itself, in all honesty, probably more difficult to read than it is now. However, We are publishing a player's handbook, which is an abbreviated version of the rules written in much plainer language, much clearer. It's written in the second person, which I at least personally find much easier to read rather than the way it is now. It is much shorter. It's uh, smaller than the current rule book, easily fits into a golf bag. But having said that, I think the vast majority of people will be carrying a player's handbook digitally on their uh, iPhones or whatever, Android devices, whatever they have. Right. But it is much smaller. And I think more importantly, and certainly the feedback we've been receiving is it's much easier to read and understand than the current rule book. Right. So with that, is there a plan to create a rules of golf app then, or are you going to just leave that to some third party vendor to create something like that? No, in fact, both the RNA and USGA, I think, have publicly released that app. I'm quite sure that it's been released now and it's available through the App Store and iTunes and those apps are available to the public right now. And I have to say that having it digitally available allows us to make a more robust and feature-laden product. We can use a lot more diagrams, a lot more technology that makes it easier to understand and easier to access whatever it is players looking to access. Right. I'm sure you can start to embed brief video clips in there too as you you go too, which of course is the way the world works these days. So, okay, let's drill down a little bit into some of the rules themselves. But first, as a designer, I want to ask you about your a little more about your process for the rule changes. How did you test these? Did you actually create simulations? For example, when you have the rules like, well, let's reduce the time to look for a lost ball from five minutes to three. Did you actually have recreational golfers go out and play around and do what we call A-B testing, ones that actually use the new rules and some that didn't to actually see if there was a change in time? Or is this all just based on assumptions and anecdotal evidence? Or are you actually getting any hard data by testing through simulations? No, it's certainly not by assumptions. There might have been some assumptions made by us when we first came up with uh, some proposals, but they were tested in a variety of ways. First of all, some of the equipment-related things. Both the RNA and the USGA have very sophisticated offices, laboratories, and very highly trained staff. And there were several times when we asked them to look at it. A lot of these concepts and changes were first tested by, frankly, the Joint Rules Committee, when we were out uh, enjoying a game of golf that would not always, but sometimes happen around our meetings. Those of us who are on the committee have actually been playing with some of these new rules for quite a long time now. So there was that method of field testing. We did ask small selected groups to test some of the rules, but 
the main method that was used was in March of 2017, I believe it was, we released a draft of the rules, a whole new rewrite of the rules that had everything that we were thinking of proposing. We released that publicly and we opened up a six-month comment period where anybody in the world could try it out, read the rules, try them on their own golf course, and send any comments into us. We received tens of thousands of comments, and they were extremely helpful, usually in validating what we were thinking of, proposing, and in some cases, making us realize that we needed to go back and rethink it. I guess if there was two examples I could point to there, when we put it out for comment, we had this idea that uh, dropping areas were going to be determined by a measure of 20 centimeters, or for other types of drops, it would be 80 centimeters. That was replacing the idea of club lengths that we use today. Well, we heard loud and clear that players wanted to keep club lengths. So we are using club lengths. Some of your listeners may remember that the initial proposal had a ball being put back into play by dropping it about two inches from the grass, which is quite a different idea than dropping it from shoulder height today. We heard again loud and clear that the golfing public didn't really like that idea, and we now have a different way of operating that says drop from knee height. There's some other examples, but those are two pretty well-known changes that came directly from that comment period. As I said, that comment period was invaluable. The responses we received were extremely high quality, well thought out, and very useful to our work. Well, it sounds like you managed to create that feedback loop to really, as you said, either reinforce the direction you're going or then to tweak that, like the great examples you just gave there. And I was going to ask you about the one because I had read that you had iterated and switched your thought on the drop height to reach that knee height rules conclusion there that you now have implemented. Well, it's interesting on the pace of play side. I was myself being involved in many sports and being a bit of a baseball geek also as far as stats and the rules on that and playing quite a bit in, in umpiring probably know that Major League Baseball changed the rule for intentionally walking a player to try to help speed up the game is just one way to do that, rather than the four pitches that you normally have to throw to actually then automatically walking the person by just saying you wanted to. And I dug into the data there, and it's interesting. About one every three games, a batter is intentionally walked, and it takes around a minute, minute and 20 to have that take place. So I guess they were saving on on average about 23 seconds per game. So whether that actually helps or not, I guess you guys have the same thing that you're reconciling the tradition of the game. And some people are saying, no, we kind of like that aspect. And one every 500 times a batter actually hits it. It's awesome. It creates something unique as compared to, well, we're doing it to help to compress the the time of the game and make it more contemporary. So I would think that would be a uh, valid comparison to some of the things that you're looking to do here too, is reconciling the need to uh, speed up the game, but also maintaining the integrity of the game also. Is that fair? Absolutely. And I have to say, as a baseball fan, I understand why uh, that change was made to the intentional walk, but there was something, I don't know, sort of attractive about that whole intentional walk process. The pitcher could make a wild pitch, the batter might swing, as you said. However, I don't think that same dynamic applied to golf. I think the things that make golf sometimes a bit too slow, perhaps, are things that not many golfers would necessarily enjoy. But Certainly one of the main activities of organized golf, not just the RNA, but the USJ, although they lead the world in this, is to address slow playing golf, to address the pace of play. And there's a tremendous amount of work being done outside the rules. But we did want to make sure that the rules 
to the extent they could, would encourage a better pace of play and to eliminate anything that might be slowing down play. You've pointed to the three-minute search time, reduced from five minutes, but I would just point to two others. There's now guidance in the new rules that says any player should not take more than 40 seconds to make any one stroke. And 40 seconds is quite a long time until you start timing some of the slow players and how long it takes them. So that 40 seconds, I think, helps to establish a baseline. And then the rules are very active now, the new rules, in promoting ready golf, that whoever's ready to play plays. And that's something that can really speed up play. I think those are the three main ways we're addressing pace of play, but there are others that will have a smaller impact. But I do have to say and, and stress again that Pace of play is a much larger problem than just the rules of golf. Oh, yes. I think we've addressed it as much as we can within the rules, but there is other factors at work. How the golf course is maintained, how deep is the rough? How hard is it to find a ball in the rough? How hard is it to play? How fast are the putting greens? Fast putting greens slow down play dramatically. And there's some other things going on. As I say, both the RNA and the USJ are doing a lot of work on that and have released some of their findings and recommendations, and there'll be more coming in the future. Right. And one of the rules I have to thank you for changing, and that is in the playing a ball category, and that's the double hit. And <laughs> the ball accidentally struck more than once during a stroke. And I, I actually pride myself as being pretty good around the greens as far as chipping. But for whatever reason, about once every four rounds... I will double hit a chip and my golf buddies just laugh and laugh and are more than happy to tag that two-stroke penalty. And of course, the ball is nowhere near where you want it to go also. The fact at least they'll still laugh as much, but at least it, it will be half as punitive and half as painful on my scorecard as that used to be before. So thank you for that one from me. Well, <laughs> I think not just you. That was actually one that there was long conversations about that. In the end, I think we felt, as you kind of just said, you've just penalized yourself if you double hit, because invariably the result is not as good as if you had just hit it once. So you've just penalized yourself. We decided we didn't want to penalize you on top of that. Actually, now that I think of it, that was not in the uh, rules that were released in March of 2017. That, again, was partially in response to feedback we had from the golfing public. Right. And if I remember, the most famous double hit, was it, I got to get the name right, was it was it CJ Choi, CK Choi, CJ Choi, in the open in the 80s there that was in the lead and then he double hit that chip and pretty much sunk his chances there? His, his name was T.C. Chin. And of course, because his initials were T.C., he became known as Two Chip Chin. Ouch. <laughs> Ouch. Oh, that's got to stick with him. So so did he lose by one stroke? I'm just wondering if uh, if he only lost by one stroke, if the rule was changed already, he w- would have went into a playoff. I, yeah, that's a long time ago. It was yeah. the mid-80s. Uh, I don't remember. I do know he was, if not in the lead, he was right at the lead. So uh, not sure if it, he'd lost it by one. Well, I'll make sure to put in the show notes with TC, two chip chin. I'll put in that a YouTube video clip of, of that so that people can see what I go through uh, on a weekly basis on the golf course there that my friends just can't get enough of. So uh, I feel his pain there, although it wasn't as financially or career as devastating for me to do it. No. I want to ask you about this. Of course, one of the other categories is player behavior. I'm sure this goes into culture and making things more contemporary. Can you talk a bit about that in in that category with some of the rules that you've tweaked there to align more with more contemporary lifestyles and behaviors? Sure. Well, that's an interesting point, one that I wasn't really aware of until I got involved in all this. You know, more generally, golf is spreading around the world. 
Whereas 40 years ago, 30 years ago, golf was a game popular in, as I mentioned a while ago, in the Commonwealth countries, the United States, and some others, Japan, Argentina. It wasn't a game that was played in all countries. And now more and more it is. And what we have found is that what seems quite natural to us in terms of golfer behavior, etiquette, if you will, being quiet while your opponent or fellow competitors making a stroke, staying out of their line, all these things that really we take for granted are not at all natural in countries where golf is just being introduced. So this is more than just the rules, but within the rules, I think for the first time, we are saying that a committee that is running a tournament or the committee that's responsible for running golf at a golf course might be the head professional, it might be a, a match committee at a private club, can now put in a, a code of conduct that has golf-related penalties. Before now, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm involved with Golf Canada. We have a code of conduct, but if you breach the code of conduct, the only thing we can do is have uh, penalties that are outside of golf. That is, we're able to say, well, you can't play in our tournaments for a year or, or a month or whatever it might be. Now, for the first time, you're going to be able to have a code of conduct that can provide an escalating set of penalties. And the first step might be a warning. And then the second one, a one-stroke penalty, a, then a two-stroke penalty. And finally, the ultimate penalty would be disqualification. So we think that this is going to allow committees to really come up with codes of conduct that address their requirements, whatever the country is in, whatever the setting is in. The code of conduct expected at a private club is different than at a public golf course. It's different at a high-level tournament. It's different in professional golf. Yes. And now we're going to be able to tailor-make those codes of conduct to the problems that need to be addressed in the setting of whatever format, whatever the group that's playing and wherever they're playing. Understood. Okay, that's great. Sticking with equipment, I wanted to ask you about this. Of course, with technology, and technology is always advancing, and it's one of the things we talk about all the time in the Mod Golf podcast, and how that is affecting game enhancement, game improvement. So tell us a bit about a few things here with DMDs, as they're called, distance measuring devices. And I'm sure as you've seen now coming out in a lot of apps, and I've talked in the podcast a few of them now, is the ability to read greens and some of them doing that in virtual reality now, or right from your phone there to be able to read that, to get a competitive advantage. Can you talk about that not only in the... I guess it doesn't apply, of course, to the competition side, but what is your approach to that on the recreational side? Like myself, as someone that plays a dozen times a year and is stuck at an 18 handicap, with those equipment changes and technology enabled, does the rules cover that in some way too? More generally, technology has been and will continue to be a real challenge for the rules makers. Technology, as it is in all forms of our lives, evolves at, it seems, a faster and faster pace, and that's certainly true of golf. Over the last few years, there's been a lot of attention paid to how the rules should be formed around the use of technology. We don't want to choke off innovation, but golf should still be golf, and the inherent challenges of golf should remain. You've referenced green reading materials, essentially. You said it in terms of technology, but paper versions exist as well. And this has been something that's really sprung on the stage in the last two, three, maybe four years. It came out of nowhere that these very detailed diagrams and mapping apps came forward. And we really felt that they were de-skilling the game. Yes. That part of the challenge of the game should be to read the green with your own eyes, with your own feet, to feel the slopes on the greens. And these materials were taken away from that skill. So we have addressed that. It's a complicated 
fix that uh, I don't think we need to go into the technical details, but we are confident that once the new rules come into effect around that, that skill will be put back in. Now, that was something that, frankly, was really more the professional game. Maybe the very elite amateurs, maybe the you know, the U.S. amateur, the Canadian amateur, the, the amateur conducted by the RNA might have been affected there, but mostly it was the professional game. And so we think we've come up with the right solution that will put that skill back into the game. And incidentally, I would mention that the use of those materials was another thing that was slowing down golf. So to a small degree, I guess we're addressing pace of play with that as well. And speaking of pace of play, I don't notice with one rule on the greens, we got quite a few changes there, but one of them now is you're able to fix imperfections, especially spike marks, which you couldn't touch before. Right. Are you finding already now that some golfers are taking that to extreme? Dreams where they're spending even more time, let's say, manicuring their line, taking away from the pace of play, or, or is that not happening? I think that, first of all, as we all know, we don't see traditional spikes very much anymore. Mm-hmm. The PGA Tour and European professionals, some of them still use them, but it's the amateur level, essentially, nobody's using them. So those spike marks of 10 and 15 and 20 years ago, you don't see them anymore. So the need to tap down all these spike marks isn't the same. And then I guess the second thing I would say is there is the potential for players, especially some players that will spend an inordinate amount of time fixing, in quotation marks, the imperfections on a green. But there's always a rule called delay of play that can be assessed. And almost all organized golf has a different pace of play policy. So If a player is going to slow down to fix every little blemish that they perceive to be on a putting green, we can address that problem if it is a problem in other ways. So I'm not really too worried about it, especially because you don't see those old traditional spike marks anymore. Got it. Got it. Okay. So let me ask you this, and I know you touched on this a little bit in some previous responses here, but of the over 30 rule changes you put in place and all that feedback that you've got by putting it out there and crowdsourcing to the golfing public. Which rule did you get the most pushback on or was got some blowback and most contentious? And which rule got the most, yeah, finally, thank you for changing that. So did you have one on either end of the spectrum there that you can talk about? Well, I think in terms of blowback, this change that we had proposed to 20 centimeters and 80 centimeters, I think that was the one that that just didn't resonate at all. The use of a club length is a very sort of natural measurement. It's obviously everybody has various lengths, but that's another issue. And this kind of artificial measurement just doesn't resonate with the average golfer. So that was probably the one we received the most suggestive comments, if I can put it that way. I think a lot of the rules we put forward were all met with immediate acceptance. The reduction from five minutes to three minutes for search the fact that you can move loose impediments in bunkers now and in hazards. You know, you could move loose impediments everywhere on the golf course except hazards and bunkers. And that caused problems for golfers. I think that was immediately seen as something that made a lot of sense. Leaving the flagstick in the uh, hole in the putting green. I think well, people might sort of initially thought, oh, that's kind of curious. As soon as you start playing the game that way, it becomes a very natural way to do it. As I say, I think there's a lot of other changes that uh, the golfing public really embraced right away. I, I guess one of the changes maybe that I would mention when it comes to professional golf, more professional golf than amateur golf, is what you see on some televised tournaments, especially the LPJ tournaments, where caddies stand behind golfers. And the optics of that were never very good. 
And when we said we're going to eliminate that, I think there was a lot of acceptance about that as well. So as I said, there was, you know, a few that received some negative comments, but overall the reaction has been very positive. We're very pleasantly surprised, actually, by the overall response from the golfing public. Yeah, and, and a lot of the things you've also done do fall under that reasonable and fair category, like loose impediment, whether it's in a bunker or just around you to be able to move that, or in a hazard where before you could not. Yeah. But the one beef that I do have here, and I'm going to call it the divot dilemma, because <laughs> I very rarely do I crush my drive right down the middle and outdrive my buddies. And on, on occasion, I'll walk up to it, and sure enough, my ball's rolled into someone's previous divot. I'm not allowed to move that. Why, even in the recreational side, was that not addressed? Did people even ask about something like that, where it's like, well, man, I got to play it out of there, but I'm in the middle of fairways. Is that something you even discussed? Oh, yeah, it was discussed. And I would say that I guess, at least as far as the media is concerned, this is probably the area that's questioned the most in terms of what we didn't do, what we didn't address. And I guess I would just point to two things. First of all, there's this basic underlying philosophy of the game of golf. Play the ball as you find it, play the course as you find it, play the ball as it lies. And divots have always been a feature of golf. If you look at some of the early television coverage, golf courses were rough and tumble affairs. They weren't these perfectly groomed surfaces, places we play now. And that dealing with the natural vagaries, the natural variances of the lie of the ball and where you find it has always been part of the game. And we felt strongly it should remain part of the game. Maybe a more practical but not equally important reason to not change this is that who determines what a divot is? When does a divot cease to be a divot? You know, a divot gets usually filled in with sand, seed mixture sometimes, and the grass starts to grow. When does that cease to be a divot? Right. We could never determine a way of really having a, a really good way of saying what's a divot, what's not a divot. When does the divot stop being a divot? And so it was just something we were never comfortable addressing in that way. Yeah. And even though I was playing devil's advocate on the divot issue there, I, I do agree with you that golf being that metaphor for life, you know, you got to play the hand that's been dealt to you. And you know what? Just keep moving forward and make the best of a situation. Absolutely. So, uh, so yeah, I, I have no problem playing over <laughs> my divots. Although you have been very fair when balls are plugged, though. That's something that you did address, though, correct? Yes. Although all we're doing there really is putting into the rule rules what was already being done. So, the rules have stated for many, many years, long before my time, that if a ball came to rest in its own ball mark in what was a closely mown area, which really means fairway height, that you got relief from that. If it was outside of that, in the rough, in some way, you didn't get relief from that. But by local rule, you could get relief. And all associations, almost without exception, there might have been one or two, always had that in effect. So Really, we're not changing the rule. We're just putting what was essentially the default position already into the rules. Right. So you're just clarifying, I guess, in a, in a way, in the, the default. Yeah. Speaking of clarifying, what type of a marketing campaign, for lack of a better term, raising awareness now? And I've seen a lot that's been put out there yourselves and others that have done that being part of the process of promotion and marketing, if you will, for the transition. Who takes care of that? Is that something that the, well, why don't you tell us about that? Because obviously there's got to be a budget attached to that. I'm curious to know who actually takes care of that financially to raise the awareness and get it out there in the golfing public's mind of the changes that are coming and how they can access the other new rules. Boy, that's a good question. That's a big question. But that was something that concerned us from the beginning. 
it is a huge education project. There are tens of millions of golfers in the world, and we need to get this message out to all of them. So it's the responsibility of really all of organized golf. It's led by the RNA and the USGA. It's led by, secondly, uh, the National Golf Federations. We are all individually responsible for rules education in our countries. But to go back to the RNA and the USGA, they have produced a whole toolkit of resources for players, for tournament committees, for golf courses to use. The education process has been really helped. I have to give the media a lot of credit here. They've really picked up on the changes. You would never expect the media to be 100% positive, but they have overwhelmingly been positive. A lot of the television shows, Golf Channel, obviously, but you'll see bits during televised tournaments. A lot of the print media have really run a lot of articles, a lot of footage on the changes. As I said, the national federations here in Canada, our provinces are embarking on education programs. Any golf club that wants to have a rules night presentation put on just needs to contact Canada, the provincial association. But that's true in the United States. They could contact their state or regional association. It's true in the United Kingdom. They can contact their county association or the English Golf Union, etc. And similar things exist with all the major golfing nations. So the RNA and the USGA have provided a lot of resource materials for golfers and those of us in national federations to use. And then it's up to us at that national, provincial, whatever the next level down is, to really take the message out to the golfers and to the golf clubs and we are getting requests every day, uh, Golf Canada and the provinces, to help educate clubs and individual golfers. And that is something that's very much at the heart of our mandate and other golf country federations mandates. And it's something that we're uh, pleased to do. And social media has to be such a great way for you to help to amplify that signal of awareness there too. Like I said, I did a quick search on YouTube earlier this week as part of my research and yeah, dozens of videos popping up that content creators, golf instructors have done their top 20 rule changes or whatever it is. So you can very quickly get up to speed in a very digestible way. So that's got to be helping your cause too. Yeah. Where the, you're not paying for that. No. It's amplifying the, the network effect to your benefit. I guess I'm showing my age when social media does doesn't pop immediately into my head as the number one way of uh, carrying the message. But I do follow Twitter and I am on Facebook. On Twitter, I think every day I see something, at least one tweet that deals with some aspect of the changes or not. So yeah, thank you for bringing that to, to everybody's attention. Uh, social media, I would say, is probably the way that the message and the changes are getting out to the majority of golfers. And in the show notes, Dale, I will include at least one link to what I think is one of the best YouTube videos that covers that. So our listeners can watch that. Okay. I will also include both of the USGA website, which I'm looking at right now here, just as far as the modernization of the rules as they're yeah. calling it there. So people yeah. can take a look at that. Before I let you go here, Dale, I do want to talk about the future. So I'm curious, now that you've been through this five-year cycle, it's impractical and unruly to think that you can expect this to be this fluid document that's changing on a moment's notice. So is there a plan in place or a structure that you're already thinking where we're going to do this every five years or every 10 years? Or is there any roadmap forward of when that next change may be? Or are you just going to worry about that at some time in the future and not concerned about it right now? What's the thought on that? I think a little bit of both, maybe. I think you've correctly pointed out that going forward, 
there will be immediate things we need to address. This project was so large in scope and in terms of rewriting all the rules that we are not foolish enough to think that we got every little detail right right away. We did the best we could. There was enormous amounts of time and energy and intelligence put into it, but we know that there will be some things that need to be addressed right away. So that process will take place over the next few months, year, maybe two years. And then after that, just waiting to see what what all this brings. So there isn't a firm timetable or process in place right now going forward. We want to see how this turns out. We stand ready to do whatever we can to address problems and to move the rules forward going down the road. Over the last 60 years, 70 years, the rules were revised on a four-year schedule. That might still be in place, but it might be another process. Really just waiting to see how this all works out. Understood. So it sounds like in the short term, that next step that you will want to call it a feedback loop. We use that all the time in the startup culture that I'm involved with, what we do in the entrepreneurship space. But really, that's what you're doing here. You're going to get that feedback loop from people and observe. And now that you put that in place to actually see over the next period of time, what resonates, as you said, and what needs to be tweaked and enhanced and modified in the next iteration of the rules of golf. Exactly right. Couldn't have put it better myself. There we go. Well, hey, I finally said something that's worth people listening to. So I'm, I'm going to leave it at that then. I probably can't do any better. So, <laughs> so hey, Dale Jackson, before we do go, I've told our listeners about a couple of the links that I'm going to put in the show notes. Is there anywhere else so that you'd like to mention where people can find out more information about the new rules of golf? Well, I think you're going to put the links into the USGA and the RNA, and both of them have a lot of uh, space and energy devoted to a whole range of tools and resources. The RNAs release what they call a toolkit, and it is really a very comprehensive set of guidelines, documents, uh, all sorts of stuff to help golfers and committees. And I think those are the two main places I would point people to. There are other websites and a lot of, uh, as you've noted, a lot of content on YouTube. I think if people wanted a kind of a quick snapshot, I think I know the video you want to link in YouTube. It's very well done. But to search on YouTube, there's more material than you could ever want to look at there. The RNA is releasing a a series of short videos that they link on Twitter, I think every day. It seems like it's every day if it's not. So that would be another place on Twitter. And I think those are the main places. There are a lot of of people around the world who are keenly interested in the rules. Some of them have their own websites up. I guess I would point maybe just one website. It's called theleafsociety.com. It's a website for real rules nerds. I mean, this is serious stuff here. But they have several sections on their website, sort of forums on the rules of golf. And they have one subforum that's dedicated to the new rules. There's a lot of good information in there as well. Okay, so we got one for the hardcore rules nerds that I will include on there. And I'll also make a point of finding one for all of our listeners that perhaps don't even golf yet and still have that intimidation factor and the rules being one of them, as you very well know there, Dale. If you want to call it rules for dummies, I will certainly find one out there that has that pocket form second person approach, as you mentioned there, to make it nice and easy for people to get up to speed on on the rules of golf so they can start enjoying this great game that you and I love so much. Absolutely. I think that'd be very helpful. 
Very good. Okay. Hey, Dale, why don't we leave it at that? Thanks so much today for casting some light on the process and also the new rules. Uh, I've learned a ton here, so I really appreciate your time. And thanks for being a guest today on the Mod Golf Podcast. Well, it's my pleasure. I hope I was able to uh, make what is a inherently complicated subject a little bit simpler. I think you did. So thanks again for that. And I look forward to only taking one stroke the next time I actually double hit my chip. I wish you well. <laughs> Thank you, sir. All right. You take care. Have a great day. Thanks very much. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Mod Golf Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Dale Jackson about the five-year process that resulted in the USGA and RNA's new rules of golf. If you'd like to learn more, go to the show page for this episode, where in the notes we've included the links to the USGA website that runs through the major changes to golf's new rules. As promised, I've also included links to what I consider to be one of the best YouTube videos to explain the rule changes, along with the USGA and RNA's list of the most 20 important changes to the rules of golf. And yes, you'll also find the YouTube video to TC Chen's infamous double-hit, two-stroke penalty chip at the 1985 US Open that led to him losing a four-stroke lead. I'd like to extend my gratitude and thanks to our sponsor partners, Fairway IQ, British Columbia Golf, and Nextlinks for helping make the Mod Golf podcast happen. Without their support, I wouldn't be able to bring you these engaging stories from the golf industry's brightest innovators and influencers. Please join me next time when I sit down with Mark Simon, who is the event vice president for PGA Golf Exhibitions. Mark oversees both the annual PGA Merchandise Show in Orlando and the PGA Fashion and Demo Experience in Las Vegas. He'll share how both these golf industry events provide the innovative platform for the over 40,000 PGA professionals who attend each year. If you enjoyed this conversation about entrepreneurship in the golf industry, you can find out more of our innovation stories on previous episodes at mod.golf or search Mod Golf Podcast on iTunes. And please rate, review, and subscribe to the show while you're there. I'm your host, Colin Weston. Thanks so much for joining me. Bye for now.